In Deuteronomy 12, 32, Moses, speaking on behalf of God, says to the children of Israel, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Now with that passage being read, I want to jump over straight to our confession, chapter 22. Before we jump into the words of the confession specifically, I want to point out This should not be controversial. Chapter 22 follows chapter 21. Simple, right? Our confession is put together in a, in a very unique way, a way that is um, purposeful, intentional. Chapter 21 in our confession is the chapter on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And it was and has always been important for our Protestant and Reformed and Baptistic forefathers that the saints of God have the freedom, the liberty of conscience, the freedom to worship according to that liberty, the liberty of their own conscience, and that they not be bound by the dictates of men. That men cannot command people to do things in worship that God is not commanded. That is a part of that Christian liberty. So in our confession, it's, it is not by accident that we move from chapter 21, Christian liberty, liberty of conscience, straight into chapter 22, a chapter on religious worship and the Sabbath day. Freedom of conscience, or the liberty of conscience and uh, Christian liberty or li Christian liberty and liberty of conscience does not mean when it when it when we come straight into a chapter on worship, it doesn't imply a free for all. We don't say, well, we believe in Christian liberty. We believe in liberty of conscience. Therefore, worship as you please. That's not what is meant by Christian liberty or liberty of conscience. Is actually the exact opposite. What this implies that we have the freedom the liberty of conscience, under God, to do what God has commanded, and that no man, no one else, can impose upon us or bind our consciences with anything beyond the Word of God. We have the liberty. Anytime someone brings something that is opposed to the Word of God or in addition to the Word of God, we have the liberty before God to say, I don't have to listen to you. You cannot bind my conscience with that. I am free not to do merely as I please. I'm free to obey God. That's a summary of what we're going to see this evening, even before we get into the confession itself. Now, looking at this chapter, I want to read through it, and we're, I'm going to read some Scripture references as we unpack this. At first, I'm just going to read... Scriptures as we go along, I won't ask you to turn to them. There will come a point when I say, okay, now let's begin to turn and we'll work our way together through the, the, the Scriptures. But at first, I just want you to hear uh, these passages as they build a case for what it looks like to worship with liberty of conscience under God. 
So chapter 22 of our confession, I'll begin reading, and, and it opens up with describing God Himself as He relates to the light of nature in man. It says, The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all. Now here we have several attributes of God listed which any man, even those who are without the Holy Spirit, any man can learn about God. When you see the light of nature, that's saying that, that understanding, that knowledge which all men have by nature. According to the light of nature, there are these things that all men can know about God. The first thing that we see is His existence, that there is a God. The light of nature shows that there is a God. All men, according to the light of nature, can see that there's a God, that He exists. Romans 1, 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So every human being, according to the light of nature, knows that God exists. The second thing we see is God's lordship and sovereignty. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all. He sits in the seat of power over all things. Acts 17, 22 and 23. Paul, preaching to the men of Athens, he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What's happening there? What he's saying is, you're religious, you worship many gods, they're unbelievers, and yet they also recognize that there must be some God who is above and behind and beyond all of these others that we worship. The unknown God. There is a God somewhere, they're saying, who must rule over all of this. And they were admitting, we just don't know who it is, so we just want to make an idol for Him. They recognized that there was a God who is Lord over all and who sits above all in sovereign power. Thirdly, we see the justice of God. The light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all and is just. The light of nature, or by the light of nature, man can learn that God is just, that He will punish the evildoer, that God seeks to sustain those who are in a pitiable estate. And we see that, or men can learn that of God, because we see that in our own selves. Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16 says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So their consciences will either accuse them or excuse them. Well, what does that imply? Except in their conscience there is a, a basis for accusation or being excused. There's, there's a basis for justice, what is right and what is wrong. 
And every society of man in every place has some sort of law, some sort of order or construct where they, where they apply, a, even if very basically, a concept of right and wrong. And they can deduce from that, look, if we all have a concept of right and wrong, then the God who is, He must be perfect in this. He must know perfectly what is right and what is wrong. And then we see the goodness of God, that He is good and doth good unto all. Psalm 145, 9, The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. So God exists. God is Lord. God is sovereign. God is just. God is good. All people can perceive this in the things that have been made. The light of nature in man teaches these things. Now the next thing we see is man's response to this. Back to the confession. It says, and, a lot of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good to all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. So you see that phrase, and is therefore. That is, in light of what all men know God is, and in light of who we know that God is, these things here are to be our response. And these actions to fear, to love, to praise, to call upon, to trust in, to serve God, these are all various aspects summarizing what we call worship. This is a chapter on religious worship. These things, when they all come together, they form the idea of worship. And so the confession is saying, in light of who God is, and in light of the fact that all men know who God is, therefore, He ought to be worshipped in these ways. And this worship that's laid out in these various words requires both the inner man and the outer man. We cannot say that it's merely the actions of the hands and the feet, outward acts of our body, nor can we say, well, it's just the heart and the mind, but true worship involves the whole man. To fear God is a response of the heart and the mind to who God is. And God is to be feared. <coughs> Jeremiah chapters 10, verses 6 through 8. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. So we see here that to fear God is His due. We owe Him fear. It's expected. It is reasonable that all men would fear God. And those who do not fear God, he says, they're stupid, they're foolish, they're like a block of wood because they don't fear God. God is to be loved. To love God is a response, again, of the heart and the mind to who God is. And Mark 12, 33 says that we are to love Him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength. 
So to love God is to worship God. To fear God is worship. To love God is worship. And we see He is to be praised. Psalm 117 verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord all nations. Extol Him all peoples. For great is His steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now this moves beyond just the heart and the mind. This moves into what we do with our mouths. To praise is to verbally laud something. To speak well of something. To praise God is to say good things to Him and about Him. It is to speak highly of God and all of His perfections. And that's an act of worship. Now typically when we think of worship in a church setting, our mind goes immediately to the music. In, in music we do praise God, but that's not all that worship is. And that's not all that we can do with our mouths. We can worship God merely by speaking, by praising Him. Then it says that we, God is to be called upon. God ought to be the one that we call upon in times of need. Psalm 50 verses 14 and 15, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most, Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Or Psalm 145, 18, The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call on Him in truth. These are references, I believe, specifically to what we would call prayer. Calling out to God in times of need. Prayer is an act of worship, and that's listed later on in this chapter in the Confession specifically. God ought to be called upon, and when we do that, we are worshiping Him. When we get to a place where we feel that I am needy, I am helpless, and we say, Oh, God, help! You've just worshiped God. You've called upon Him. You, you have displayed that He is the one you call upon in a time of need. And then we see that God is to be trusted in, we are to entrust our whole selves to Him, our souls, our bodies, our whole lives. Proverbs 3, 5 to 8, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. So to trust in the Lord is an act of worship. That's something that you can do without saying anything, without going anywhere, just in your heart, resigning yourself into His hands and saying, I leave it up to the Lord. God receives that as an act of worship because you're treating God for what He is, as who He is, the only one that can be trusted. And then God is to be served. I think this implies actions. There are things that we ought to do for God that accompany our thoughts and our words about God. So we ought to, yes, think good things about God, write things about God. Yes, we ought to say good things about God to God for God. But accompanying that, we ought to use our bodies to actually serve Him, to do things for Him. And this is worship. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And Romans 7, 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. What do we do? We serve. Paul doesn't say, so that now we do something completely different. 
No, he says, now we do the same thing. We still serve God. We just do it in a new way. We do not serve God according to the, the, the constraints of, of pure law binding the heart, but rather we serve in the new way of the power of the Holy Spirit. But we still serve the Lord, and that's an act of worship. We are to do all these things, the, the language of our confession, which is just biblical language, with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. The might would be the physical part of this worship. And we summarize this many times with Romans 12, verse 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Present your whole self to God in worship. In light of who God is, we are to worship God. This is important. God's nature the light of nature shows these things about God. God's nature is the basis of our worship. Because of who He is, we worship. Again, most of that is not controversial or strange or new. Most Christians across the entire spectrum of Christianity would agree with all of that. But now let's consider this question. Do I as an individual or do we as a church get to define these aspects of worship? In other words, do I get to define what it means to fear God? And then do you also get to define what it means to fear God? And if we come up with different definitions, well, that's fine because it's up to me and it's up to you. Or, or do we as a church have the task to gather together and say, what do we believe that it means to fear God? What, what, what do, are we going to say it means to love God or to praise God or to call upon God or to trust God or to serve God? Is it our task to define these terms, these ideas? Or, the other option would be, is there already a standard from which these things, or, or in which these things are already defined and explained that we can come to, to learn from. Well, as you think about that question, consider what our Lord said in John 4, 24. He says, But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So we see in this passage that we must worship according to truth. There is truth, and there is falsehood, error. And it is possible to worship God erroneously. Think in your mind, golden calf, the foot of Mount Sinai. Who were they worshiping? They thought they were worshiping the God who brought them out of Egypt. They were, but they were worshiping Him wrongly. It is possible to worship God erroneously or wrongly, but we also see that it is possible to worship God according to truth. Truth. And this is why our confession goes on to say, we have a period in this paragraph, we start a new sentence, but. So we have the light of nature. Everybody knows this about God. And everybody ought to respond this way. The light of nature in all men. 
Now we're going to move from the light of nature that everyone has, general revelation, to special revelation. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will. That's special revelation. That He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, if you go back to, uh, I believe it's, Paragraph or chapter one, you have this this idea that that, or we, or we could just summarize generally from scripture. General revelation re- reveals to all men that there is a God, but that saving knowledge only comes by special revelation. Here we have sort of the same uh, way of thinking. Here's general revelation. The light of nature teaches this, but. If you want to move to the next level of acceptable worship, then there must be special revelation. And that's, that's what's important here in this paragraph, that it reads, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will. So everybody, all men ought to fear God, love God, praise God, call upon God, trust God and serve God with all the heart, with all the soul, with all the might. Everyone ought to do that because of who God is. But the acceptable way of doing that, the only way anyone can know how, is special revelation. It's revealed in His Word. There might be, in the minds of men, countless ways of worshiping God. I put that in quotations, worshiping God. We're not concerned with the many ways that men might think they're worshiping God. What we ought to be concerned with is the acceptable way. As our confession says, the acceptable way, singular. So we would agree, there are many ways that men attempt to worship the God of the Bible that are not acceptable. We would say they are unacceptable. Not to us, but to God. God does not accept them. Remember, worship is an offering. And God must accept it. We, we call our, our morning worship a worship service. We come to serve God, to offer Him a service of worship. What we're hoping is that He accepts that worship. We want to worship God in the acceptable way, and there are gifts and there are offerings that God does not accept. Think Cain and Abel. They both came on the right day. They both came to the right place. They both brought something. One of them was not accepted. So we, we, we learn on page 4 of the Bible, there are ways that people want to worship God and God says, I'm, I won't take that. I will not accept that. We have to get that through our minds. We generally think differently. If acceptable worship begins with and is rooted in who God is, then we must first come to understand the most basic fact of His nature, which is that He is holy. He's not like us. We think He ought to accept everything we bring. And that's because we think that He's like us. But He's not like us. He does not accept what you or I might accept. He does not see value in what we might find valuable. 
That which impresses us usually doesn't impress God very much. And many times that which warms our hearts and makes us feel really good is an abomination to God. God hates it. We have to get that through our minds. He's not like us. He's holy. So if we would offer God acceptable worship, we have to recognize that not all worship is acceptable before God because we are worshiping a God who is not like us. Therefore, we cannot use our reasoning and say, well, if I like this, then God must like it. No, God's not like you. God's not like me. He's holy. He's other than. Well, now we're at a standstill. How could, how could any of us possibly know what He accepts? How could we possibly know what He wants us to bring? Notice what it says. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself and so limited by His own revealed will. Now the word instituted means established or appointed or founded. So the, the acceptable way of worshiping God, the worship that God will accept, is established by Him, appointed by Him. And so, or and therefore, limited, restricted by, controlled by, confined to His own revealed will, which we find where? In His Word. We go back to that standstill. God is holy. He's not like us. We want to worship Him. We want to serve Him. We want to bring Him what is acceptable. But He's not like any of us. How could we possibly know what He wants us to do? The only way we could ever know is, is if He would speak and say, here's what I will accept. And that is what He's done in His Word. This is important. It's important to point out that it is not we who have decided that we'll stick to divine revelation. Now, we, we must come to that conclusion. We ought to make that decision. But that's not something that we just decided to do. We need to understand that it is God who is the restrictor. God's revealed will is doing the limiting, limited by His own revealed will. Acceptable worship is limited by God's revealed will. That's important because there are many who would say, oh, you, you Reformed Baptists, you just don't like anything fun. You don't like anyone fun. You hate seeing people happy. You hate women. You hate flags, you hate your country, you hate Christmas, you hate Easter, you hate Lent, you are trying to make worship just as plain and boring as possible. That's what they think. We, we came to this decision by ourselves. Well, we ought to respond. You must be confused. You must think that we were the ones who did this. We didn't do this. This wasn't our idea. It is God who has done this. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is limited by His revealed will, not my revealed will. We didn't put our heads together and say, you know what, I think we'll just stick to the Bible. No, God said, you will stick to my word. This is the only way to worship acceptably. And to the spiritual saint who wants to please God and finds delight in obedience, we say, this is an amazing thing. 
God has not left us at that standstill wondering, is this acceptable or not? Is he happy or not? Is he pleased or not? Do I do this or do I do this? God has not done that. God, almighty God, has revealed to us that he's going to limit the kind of worship that he considers acceptable. He has done that. He's graciously limited it. He's not given us over to our own imaginations or inventions. He's not given us a, a, an endless list of thousands of prescriptions to do to try to, to squeeze them all in and, and hope that we can get it right. No, He has limited it by making it so simple and plain, but in such a way that is so contrary to our human flesh that it requires faith to do it and be pleased. That's what He's done. It's a gracious thing. So that's the description of the acceptable worship put forth in a, in a positive light. Very often, because many people come from a background and, and ha, where they have not considered what God has said concerning biblical worship, when they come into a setting like ours, a, a confessional or reformed setting, and they see the simplicity of biblical worship, and they hear perhaps a defense of that simplicity, they see it as purely negative. You all got together and you tightened the noose on the Holy Spirit and you have restricted worship because you hate everything and you want everybody to be miserable. It's negative to them. But we say, no, no, no. This is not negative. We've, we've not choked out true worship. God, in His mercy, has limited the requirements of acceptable worship, has clearly revealed them in His Word so that we can come, obey, and go home and know God smiles at what we've done. Now, it might seem odd to us. We worship, we say, is that it? It seems so simple, so plain, so flesh-withering. It didn't exalt any man. It didn't, didn't make anybody feel tingly. We, we read His Word. We sang His Word. We prayed. We, we opened up and expounded His Word. There were moments in, at, as, as we read the Word that I was convicted of sin and, and I, I realized I ought to change or I was stirred up to wonder at this God and then I went home. Seems so simple. God says, right, that's what I'll have. And it, again, it requires faith for us to do that and say, it seems so simple. It seems so plain. But what is it? It's obedience. God is pleased with obedience. How can I know that God smiles upon what I call worship? Answer, go to His Word. Amen. Have you obeyed? That's what He desires. Then following this, we have five simple negative things. What not to do. It says that He may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations, or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I'll, I'm going to fly through these because our time is short. Not according to the imaginations of men, so God doesn't want us work, worshiping according to our imagination, but according to what He has revealed. Not according to the devices of men, not things that we have designed and invented on our own to try to worship God. Not according to the suggestions of Satan. Hopefully nobody is asking, Satan, would you tell me how to worship God? Whatever he says, just... Don't listen to him. 
not according to the suggestions of Satan, not under any visible representation. So we may not use visible objects as an aid or an assistant in worship. And here's the last one, and this is going to take up the rest of our time this evening. Not in any way, not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. So we may not worship God in any way not prescribed in the Bible. Prescribed means commanded. We may not worship God in any way not commanded in the Bible. And this brings us to the two primary views with regard to worship. The first one is called the normative principle. And the second one has been called the regulative principle. The normative principle says that we are free to worship in any manner or by any means that is not explicitly forbidden in Scripture. So we can do anything besides sin and God will accept it. If we summarize this up in a statement, God doesn't say we can't, therefore we may. The regulative principle says that we are free to worship God only in the manner and by the means commanded in Scripture. We may do what God commands, no more, no less. This would be summarized in this statement. God doesn't command it, therefore we may not do it. That's the regulative principle. Now our confession is putting forth that second view, the regulative principle. This has been the, 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 the guiding principle of what we would call reformed worship from since the time there were reformed. The Lutherans would not agree with this, obviously. Rome would not agree, um, and, and so forth. But the reformed have historically held this view, the regulative principle. And we do believe that this is the biblical view of worship. Now, for the rest of our time, we're going to turn together, and I want to justify that with Scripture. And we're going to walk down a very common and well-worn path through the Scriptures on this subject. Why do I say that? If you Google the regulative principle, if you get on Sermon Audio and you type in regulative principle, everybody's going to be doing the same thing. It's, it's a very simple, look at these passages, see what God is doing, and you'll see this principle laid out. So, I've already mentioned Cain and his worship, so we'll skip that and go straight to Exodus chapter 20 and the Ten Commandments. And I will try to go quickly. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now we'll stop there. I just want to point out, in commandment number one, God has already forbidden other gods. You can only have one God. So when we get to commandment two, He's not saying the same thing again. He's saying He's giving a different commandment. He's not repeating Himself. What is, what is the, the use of, of carved images or likenesses? Images were means of worship. They were the way by which people would worship. Again, go back to the golden calf. 
Were they worshiping the calf? No, they were using the calf as a means to worship the gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Images were a means. And so in this commandment, God is forbidding worshiping Him by using the means of carved man-made images. So the idea of carved images represents any and every way that men might attempt to worship the one true God and yet do it in a way imagined in their own minds or invented with their own hands. Commandment 1 deals with who we are to worship. Commandment number 2 deals with how we are to worship. It must be according to the way God has revealed Himself. Did God reveal Himself by means of a carved image or likeness of any creature? No, He did not. Therefore, we may not worship in those ways. And you can compare that to Deuteronomy chapter 4 where he opens that up further. So there God begins, how are we to worship Him? Not in any way imagined or designed in the minds or with the hands of men. Alright, Leviticus chapter 10. Turn there. Leviticus chapter 10. Verses 1 and 2. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Now notice what their sin was. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. So they came to worship. They came before the Lord to worship. They came to the right place. They brought incense, which had been commanded. But you know, incense has to be burned with some sort of flame. Where did they get this flame? Well, they got this flame from someplace besides where God had told them to get the flame. It's this, this flame or this fire is unauthorized. And He explains unauthorized by saying, which he had not commanded. It doesn't say they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he told them not to. He says, which he had not commanded. He didn't tell them not to, but he didn't tell them to. That was their sin. And therefore, their offering was not accepted by God. They were put to death. All right, Deuteronomy 12, which we read at the beginning. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Again, a summary statement by Moses concerning the worship of God. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Simply put, Moses says, do what God commands. Don't add to what God commands. Don't take away from, God, from what God commands. Just do what God commands. Don't embellish what God commands. Don't spruce up what God commands. Don't make what God commands pretty. Don't try to flower it up. Just do what God commands. Very simple. Alright, turn to 1 Kings chapter 12, if you will. 1 Kings 12. And verse 32, 1 Kings 12, 
32 says, And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. I'll stop there. You say, that doesn't seem like much. Well, remember God had appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the seventh month. Jeroboam appointed a feast on the same day in the eighth month. Now, sure, Jeroboam added other things to his sin. There was more that he did than just this. But the fact that his sin was more than this does not mean that it was less than this. This was a part of the list of sins that Jeroboam committed. What was his sin? He added a feast day. He added a holy day to God's calendar. So he said, with his other sins, come to Bethel and Dan. Don't limit yourself to Jerusalem. Come here to worship. He used these images, these man-made calves. He said, don't limit yourself to divine revelation. Use these calves. And he said, come on the eighth month. Don't limit yourself to the seventh month. Come on the eighth. After all, isn't God worthy of more places to worship than one? Isn't God worthy of more avenues, more means to worship, more ways to get in touch with Him and experience His presence in a real, vibrant way? You can look at the calf and you can see it and it's, it's, it's gold and its beauty would stir up your heart and you would feel like you had been in the presence of God. Isn't He worthy of that? And isn't God worthy of more than just that one feast day last month? Isn't He worthy to come back for another one this month? Sure He is. And in this, He led Israel to sin. Why? Because God didn't command a a worship day, a, a festival day, a holy day on the eighth month. God commanded the holy day on the seventh month. That was the problem. You don't add to God's calendar. All right, turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7. Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 31. I'll I'll read verse 30 just for context. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. You don't have to turn to these. Chapter 19, paragraph, or chapter 19, verse 5 of Jeremiah, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Chapter 32, verse 35, they have built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer their sons and their daughters to Molech, though I did not command them nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. Now notice in these passages what God didn't say. God did not say, 
They've burned their sons and daughters in the fire, which I told them not to do. He doesn't say that. He says, I did not command them to do this. Now, why is that important? If God had commanded this as an act of worship, burn your sons and daughters in the fire, it would have been acceptable worship. As awful as it sounds, if God says, throw your child in the flame, that's what you do. But he says, I didn't command that. That's what you're doing, but I never commanded that. As a matter of fact, in the many conquests of Israel, they were commanded to slaughter every breathing thing, including children. And the word is devote them to destruction which if you have the footnotes in, in your Bible will explain that that is the language of ceremonial consecration to God. In other words, in those instances, God said, slaughter them as an offering of worship to me. Sometimes He did command the slaughtering of children. In this instance, He did not. God was not above commanding people to slaughter children as an act of worship. The issue here is not that God told them not to. The issue is that God did not command it. If I would have commanded it, you had better do it. But I didn't command it. Now we hear this. We say, well, wasn't this just the Old Testament? Remember this morning, we're not allowed to say, well, as a blanket statement, that's the Old Testament. That, we, we can't say that. That's not how the Bible works. But also what we've already seen this evening that the root of acceptable worship is the character of God and what He said. God has not changed. And so while He might change positive institutions, He can come along and say, okay, no more animal sacrifices, now this. The, the rule, the principle, which is based on His holy character, doesn't change. You do what I've commanded, no more, no less. What God has commanded, we do. If He's not commanded it, then we don't do it. But we do see this in the New Testament. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, I'll begin reading in verse 21. Paul is denouncing the asceticism of the Gnostics. He says, do not handle. This is their, their made up. Worship. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So here he, he in a roundabout way, condemns this idea of self-made religion a phrase that is one word, ethelothreskia, threskos, meaning religion or religious worship. Thelo means to will or to wish. This phrase, self-made religion, is literally will worship or worship according to the will of man, what man wants to do. And again, Paul condemns that. We worship based on divine revelation, not based on our own preferences or wishes or will. 
Now, you might hear all this and say, but isn't it really the heart, the intentions that matter the most? We say, I know plenty of people and churches who do many things that we don't find in Scripture, but I know they mean well. They have good intentions. Surely God accepts their worship. They mean well. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. You know the story. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it. For the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Do you not think that Uzzah meant well when the ark of God was about to fall? And his heart probably, he was probably shocked thinking, the ark of God cannot fall. I have to save the ark of God. Don't you think he meant well when he reached out to catch it? He was trying to do what he felt best in that situation. When they built this cart, they were, they were probably not thinking, ah, fooey with God's commands. We're building an ark. They probably thought, we just want to get this thing to Jerusalem as quickly and, fa- and, and as easily as possible. Do you not think that they had good intentions? Of course they did. Of course Uzzah's intentions were well. The problem was that they disobeyed God. God never prescribed an ark. He prescribed poles. God never prescribed anyone to keep the ark from falling. He never said, well, if it's about to fall, reach out and grab it. No, God says you don't touch it. God doesn't care if the ark hits the ground. He cares if we will obey Him. So again, I say the rule for acceptable worship is not, do we mean well? Do we have good intentions? God didn't say we couldn't. As I've said in the past, that's the reasoning of a seven-year-old. We didn't say we couldn't. That's how kids reason. Children reason that way. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is limited by His own revealed will, and He may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. I would suggest our confession is merely stating what the Bible teaches from the beginning to the end on the worship of God. Now as we go through this series on the church, and I'm I'm finished, When we go through the series on the church, we're going to talk about things like church officers, church membership, worship services, discipline, and many other things. And we will set as our guide the Word of God and only the Word of God. We as the church of Jesus Christ can only do what Christ, the head of the church, has commanded. And so may God give us the grace to find joy in the simplicity of biblical worship and church order. Find joy in obedience. That's what God wants us to do. Let's pray.